Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Bob Keeling discusses his new book, Good Day Sunshine State, How the Beatles Rocked Florida. Clearly their travels in 1964 and here in the Sunshine State were crucial in planting that seed for generations of iconic musicians to come. We'll talk about the glamorous age of nightclubs in Miami Beach. Nightclubs and other entertainment venues cross gender and racial boundaries seemingly with little interference from authorities. And visit the historically black American Beach. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In early 1964, America, and Florida in particular, was still feeling the impact of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The president had visited several cities in Florida just days before he was killed in Texas on November 22, 1963. When the Beatles arrived in America just a couple of months later, their upbeat music was a welcome change of pace. Bob Keeling is author of the new book, Good Day Sunshine State, How the Beatles Rocked Florida, published by Florida Humanities and the University Press of Florida. Ben, I was lucky enough to interview numerous primary sources, people who were there. One example is Gail Cameron, who was a young correspondent from Life magazine in um, the 60s. And she was right there at Ground Zero at Camelot with JFK and Jackie. And she talked about you know, in 63, when the just the tragic assassination of JFK took place, it was as if the whole country was just in this collective malaise. They couldn't believe that a president with so much promise and youth and vigor could be taken away so terribly. And, and that really underscores the importance of the Beatles. She said, hearing, I want to hold your hand for the first time, was like, the nation had permission to smile again. It, it was like these strangers from overseas were coming to remind us about what joy was. And they were there to conquer America. And because of the recent events that had happened, America was ready for the Beatles. They needed a lift and the Beatles were there to provide it. The Beatles came to New York to perform on the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th, 1964. They arrived in Miami on February 13th to make another appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show from the Deauville Hotel. The Deauville performance was particularly significant because unlike their first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, this was done from a working beach resort. 
you can imagine how busy it is anyway. And they're trying to stage this nationally televised show where the technology is a lot more primitive than, than it is today. But they muddled through. The Beatles did great. I was lucky enough to interview Ed Sullivan's grandson, who was standing just a few feet from the Beatles. And he said, I will never forget that music. It is as if it's etched into my soul. And the Beatles loved the Deauville so much, they decided they didn't want to go back home. So it ended up being sort of a residency there in South Florida. They were there for almost nine days and they wrote some of the songs for A Hard Day's Night. They really fell in love with America. You know, they got to see palm trees for the first time and beaches. This was a big deal for a bunch of young guys from workaday Liverpool, England to come here. They got to date American women and go to restaurants and have their first home-cooked meal in America with their bodyguard sergeant, Buddy Dresner, in his home in North Miami Beach. One of the greatest strengths of the book Good Day Sunshine State, in addition to Bob Keeling's storytelling ability, is the large number of interviews he conducted and acquired with people involved in the Beatles' visits to Florida. Policeman Buddy Dresner was one of those people. His son provided me a videotape interview that he did with his dad back in the early 2000s. And, you know, a policeman comes knocking on his door. He was the overnight shift guy. And he's like, why is this guy waking me up during the day? You know, and and they say, you're going to be assigned to the Beatles. And Buddy's like, what is that? And he, he was educated very quickly when he saw the footage of the Beatles uh, arrival in the United States. And there were 200 police officers trying to keep security. And he said, I think we only have about 60 on our entire force down here. So he knew this was a big job. But what was great about Buddy was he had this wonderful sort of sense of humor. He could he could be a fatherly figure. He could be sort of like a big brother. He could joke around with them. But at the end of the day, when it was time to get serious, the Beatles knew it was, you know, it was time to do that. And he became a friend, a protector, as I said, something of a father figure. He had them over to his house for dinner. You know, the Beatles in a little cop's house in North Miami Beach, you know, and so it was very compelling that Buddy took him into his family. And at one point, the job was so big, he ended up rooming with George at the Deauville just to save time going back and forth. So Buddy's a really key character in the first half of this book, and they couldn't have had a better bodyguard than Sergeant Dresner. In 1964, the Beatles spent more time in Florida than anywhere else in the United States, both fulfilling professional obligations and relaxing. There's an iconic photograph of the four Beatles together in a pool that made the cover of Life magazine. Bob Keeling spoke with everyone involved in creating that image. The entire Life staff, from Gail Cameron, who was the reporter, who recounted being on the 12th floor of the Deauville, pleading with John Lennon, please do this. You know, the Beatles are down there thinking, you know, they're going to have a holiday, but no, now they're going to go have to work and do a photo shoot. And she's saying, this is such a big deal. And he's finally like, okay, love, we'll do it. And so they go to this house on Biscayne Bay and they get in the pool and they do it. And uh, it's just so iconic. And I also interviewed John Lowengard, who actually took that iconic photograph. And he said at the time, I really didn't think it was that big a deal. I didn't think it was that good. And then years later, my teenage daughter's friend asked if she could touch my hand just because it was the hand that took the picture of the Beatles in the swimming pool. 
So uh, it's definitely an iconic photo and very representative of their time in Florida and their first visit to the United States. The Deauville Hotel in Miami, where the Beatles stayed and performed live for a national audience on The Ed Sullivan Show, was demolished last year due to neglect. Bob Keeling was among those who actively fought for the historic structure to be preserved, but ultimately the owners were not interested in the building's history. The Beatles returned to Florida in September of 1964 to play a concert at the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, but a hurricane forced a detour to Key West. They had played Montreal the night of the 8th, September 8th, and Ringo actually had death threats by some anti-Semitic groups. And he would say, I'm not Jewish. Regardless, this was a, this was a threat they took very seriously. And when their show was over, they said, let's get the heck out of here. And they flew, they wanted to fly all night to Jacksonville. And there's this bad weather forecast. So Larry Kane, who was traveling with them, the Miami newsman said, let's go down to Key West. So those were the circumstances why they ended up down there. But it was a very historic two and a half days there. And there's one part, especially with John and Paul, where you know, they'd had this stressful tour. They were finally getting to relax for a couple of nights before they had to go back to Jacksonville on the 11th. And Paul talks about that night as a really specific time where he and John had drank a little too much, but they really got down to talking about how much each other meant to both of them. And it was a really important connection that they made that Paul talked about it specifically after John died. And in some lyrics, he talked about, you remember that time we cried because we couldn't keep it all inside or words to that effect. That was the night in Key West that he was referring to. After staying in Key West, the Beatles headed to Jacksonville to perform their only full concert in Florida. The group became civil rights activists of sorts shortly after Martin Luther King Jr. had been jailed in North Florida. One of the people I was so fortunate to be able to interview at length for hours was Larry Kane. And at the time, Larry was a 21-year-old radio newsman in Miami. He had met them when they first came, and then he sent a letter saying, hey, I'd love to get an interview when you come to Jacksonville. Well, instead, he was invited to go on the entire tour with the Beatles, as opposed to the disc jockeys who might do an interview saying, hey, are you guys going to break up soon? Why do you keep your hair so long? Larry Kane was the kind of a guy who was tapping into the Beatles' developing worldview. And soon enough, they would become social agents of change. In Las Vegas, Larry was the one who asked, you know, there's a, a very good chance the Gator Bowl show in Jacksonville could be segregated. What do you think about that? And the Beatles said, there's a writer in our contract for every single promoter who puts on our show that we will not be required to perform in front of segregated audiences. The influence of the Beatles on young musicians really can't be overstated. One of the many young people who was greatly impacted by the Beatles was Florida musician Tom Petty. You'll see interviews with guys like Tom Petty, with Don Felder from Gainesville, with Mike Campbell, who grew up in Jacksonville, with Ronnie Van Zant from Leonard Skinner, Stephen Stills, who was the only musician inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for two different bands on the same night, the Allman Brothers. All of these guys either grew up in Central Florida or actually born and raised here like Tom Petty. All of them talk about the profound influence of the Beatles and how important it was 
And so clearly their travels in 1964 and here in the Sunshine State were crucial in planting that seed for generations of, of iconic musicians to come. Bob Keeling is author of the new book, Good Day Sunshine State, How the Beatles Rocked Florida, published by Florida Humanities and the University Press of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, find out about upcoming events, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, following World War II, people were in a mood to celebrate, and Miami Beach was ready to accommodate them with an active nightclub scene. Yes, they were. Not everyone who is published in the Florida Historical Quarterly is an academic historian. One of the more interesting articles was submitted by an associate professor in public administration at Florida International University, Keith D. Revel. His article, The Rise and Fall of Copa City, 1944-1957, appeared in the spring 2017 issue of The Quarterly. It explores the life of the city's most glamorous era of nightclubs and high-end entertainment. Copa City, Revel tells us, was the product of a dazzling moment in the history of Miami Beach as a world-class tourist destination. Like all dazzling moments, it faded too quickly, undermined by its own gold rush mentality and the appearance of a new competitor against which nightclubs had few options. Revel uses Copa City to illuminate the role of nightlife in the rapid evolution of Miami Beach as a tourist city. The nightery, as nightclubs were called in the trade, lured nationally and internationally known entertainers to perform on its stage before succumbing to unmanageable debt and the next form of competition. Copa City was a glamorous and important moment in the tourism history of Miami Beach. And even in the mid-20th century, Miami Beach nightclubs were ready to serve diverse audiences. They were. In his 1981 book on New York nightlife, Louis A. Ehrenberg argued that that city's nightclubs facilitated the transition from the staid mores of Victorian gentility by creating new styles of consumption, sexual expression, and social interaction. Nightclubs, he says, transformed the deviant, disreputable elements of Prohibition-era entertainment into safe but exciting fare for an increasingly large urban market, the patrons of which found their way to Miami in the annual tourist season. Miami nightclubs were contested spaces that battled against local authorities to allow behaviors that crossed color lines as entertainers explored the rhythms and motifs of Afro-Caribbean and Cuban music. 
As Julio Capo Jr. notes in his award-winning book, Welcome to Fairyland, nightclubs and other entertainment venues cross gender and racial boundaries seemingly with little interference from authorities, at least during tourist season. Miami Beach historians agree emerged as an adult playground without the family theme parks and roadside attractions that brought more sedate tourists to Central Florida. Tourists flocking to Miami came for an adventure. They came to be naughty. Chief among the nightclubs of post-World War II Miami Beach, Copa City stood out for its sheer audacity in everything from its sweeping modern construction, featured on the cover image of the quarterly, to its high-dollar entertainment. Fulfilling its vision of glamour laid the foundation for its downfall. What do you mean? Did uh, Copa City spend more on its image than it could generate in income? Yeah, Revel analyzes Copa City and the nightclub era to make three related arguments. First, nightlife existed in a defined geography of glamour that drew tourists to Miami Beach. Secondly, he uses the story of Murray Weiner and his club Copa City to illustrate the competition between nightclubs that pushed owners to take enormous financial risks and produced a gold rush mentality that ended in collapse. Finally, he argues, the movement from the nightclub district to the cloistered spaces of glamorous hotels ended the reign of nighteries that ushered in a new era of entertainment. Nighteries concentrated in two key areas of South Beach. On the ocean side, visitors found the Five O'Clock Club, the El Chico Club, Wits Inn, Bosch's Villa Venice, and Bill Jordan's Bar of Music. On the bay side stood the largest and most noteworthy venues, the Beachcomber, Copacabana, Kitty Davis's Airport, later Airliner, and Mother Kelly's. Among other venues scattered around the area were the Paddock Club and the Royal Palm Club. Revel notes that in 1940, with a population of slightly more than 28,000, Miami Beach was home to more than a dozen nighteries. In the post-war era, nightclub owners shelled out large sums of money to attract nationally known entertainers to perform in their clubs, including Milton Berle, Maurice Chevalier, Sophie Tucker, Lena Horne, Louis Armstrong, Josephine Baker, and Cab Calloway. Milton Berle was offered $20,000 to play the Copacabana. The bidding war for performers was most vigorous between the owner of the beachcomber and winer of the Copacabana, later Copa City. And Miami Beach's glamorous nightclub era continued well into the 1950s, right? It did. Murray Weiner arrived in Miami Beach in 1944 from Coney Island, New York, where he learned the nightery trade. In a sleight of hand, using the good credit of his partner, he purchased the Monte Carlo for $96,000, renamed it the Copacabana, and bought out his partner. He gave the Copacabana a $100,000 facelift and joined the talent war. On June 7, 1948, a fire destroyed the Copacabana. Standing in the ashes, Weiner voiced the possibility of attracting the foremost modernist architect, Norman Belgetti's, the so-called grand master of modernism, to design a new nightclub. Almost like something imagined in Hollywood, Belgetti's agreed. After seven months of planning and construction, Copa City opened in December 1948, just in time for the tourist season. 
with movable interior walls and no interior columns to obstruct patron views, Copa City could accommodate 150 to 800 patrons for dinner, dancing, and performances. The sweeping entrance had no neon lighting. Its plain exterior was elegance personified. Despite its popularity, though, the overwhelming debt incurred in constructing the new club, Del Geddes was never paid for his work, and the cost associated with the escalating talent wars, Copa City closed its doors only months later. Until his untimely death in 1957 at age 40, Weiner continued to pursue his Copa City dream, opening and closing the club several times. After his death, the elegant building hosted a number of less-than-elegant tenants. At the time of the publication of the article, it was a storage facility. Weiner and Copa City were fighting an uphill battle in the early 1950s as Miami Beach engaged in a new form of tourism, the rise of self-contained beach hotels, offering restaurants, pools, and beach access, shops and nightclub venues. Hotels like the Fontainebleau and the Aden Rock promised everything without leaving the hotel grounds. The era of the Miami Beach nightclub had come to an end. It sounds like a fun era to participate in. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker has this look at a children's book about the historically black American beach. As a girl, Mabin Betch loved the beach. She loved the whoosh of its waves, its blue sky stretching to forever, and the creature swimming in its tangy sea. But Mabin couldn't go to just any beach. Because of her skin, silken and butter brown, she couldn't eat in most restaurants or visit most bathrooms. There was even a rope in the ocean. One side said colored, the other white. Something must be done, her great-grandfather said. And so Mr. Abraham Lincoln Lewis bought a beach. It was an ocean paradise where his family and other Black people could swim, picnic, and build sandcastles. He believed that a beach should be open to everyone. That was author Heidi Tylene King reading from her award-winning picture book, Saving American Beach, the biography of African-American environmentalist Maveen Betch. Illustrated by Caldecott honoree Equa Holmes, Saving American Beach tells the story of Maveen Betch, an African-American opera singer turned environmentalist who became known as the Beach Lady. So Maveen Betch, I think a lot of people, if you do know her, you know her as the Beach Lady. But she grew up in a very wealthy African-American family in Jacksonville. And her great-grandfather actually at one time was one of the richest, wealthiest African-Americans. So they couldn't go to the beach, which is crazy. So he decided to do something about that. 
And so he actually bought a beach. The beach was named American Beach, and it was a place where he wanted African-Americans to be able to go for relaxation without discrimination. So all of the celebrities of the day went to American Beach. But there are people who remember the Betch family arriving in limousines for their summer vacation as well. And that was Maveen's family. She went to Oberlin College, became a well-respected, world-renowned opera singer. And when her mother was very sick, she returned to Florida to care for her. And then when her mother died, she stayed. After returning to Florida, Maveen Betch dedicated her life to protecting the environment. She spent the rest of her days educating people about Black history and the environmental importance of American Beach, a place she considered sacred. She was a staunch environmentalist, and she well may have been one of the very first African-American women environmentalists. And she was quite wealthy, and she supported all kinds of causes. She supported whale research. There's a whale named after her. She supported butterfly research. A very important book for butterflies is dedicated to her. Soon, however, she had given all of her money away to these important causes. And I think that she then moved to the beach. She slept in a chaise lounge, as the book says, and bathed in the ocean. Her sister did give her a camper, and she did live in that at some time. And there were other times when she lived in houses, I think, that still belonged to her family. So she was very much one and the same with the beach. She stayed there, and she she really advocated for the beach and she would give tours and she would really talk to anybody who would listen about why that beach was so special. And she just continued doing that um, even when people weren't listening, when it wasn't a big deal to be environmentally friendly or to preserve places for all people. So I think that she really just kept going when so many people would have given up. In 2002, American Beach was added to the National Register of Historic Places. Ma Veen Betch, lovingly called the Beach Lady, passed away in 2005 at the age of 70. Her ashes were scattered in the ocean off of American Beach and on the high dunes she successfully fought to protect. She was posthumously honored as an unsung hero of compassion by the Dalai Lama. She's remembered today for her contributions to the environmental movement and for fighting for diversity and inclusion in public spaces. In 2014, American Beach Museum opened its doors, bringing one of Ma Veen's dreams to life, Heidi Tylene King. Florida has a lot of development on its beaches. There aren't very many left like American Beach that are as pristine. And I think the beach lady recognized that and really did march in Tallahassee. And she used her body and art as a way to protest what was going on. So I just, I thought she was a great role model. I was writing this for my girls. As much as I was drawn to her, that's really what I I was looking at. As somebody who's not afraid to be different, who's not afraid to stand up for what they believe in and who succeeds. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. 
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.